Welcome, I'm Ross Young and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show. Welcome back to another CISO Tradecraft. I'm G. Mark Hardy. I'm here with Ross Young. And today we're going to be talking about the concepts of security frameworks. Specifically, what are they? What are the different kinds of frameworks? What type of framework would be appropriate for your organization if you're in a position to select it? And finally, like what's in a framework and what should we expect from there? Ross? Yeah, this is a really good topic because every CISO I know will be asked to present a strategy to the board or to the CIO within the first 90 days about what do they need to change? What do they want to implement and improve inside the whole organization? And to do that, you you typically see a common framework, which is, okay, let's figure out what we're going to measure ourselves against. Let's take a couple of uh, assessments where we actually see where we're at. And then afterwards, we're going to implement some things and we're going to baseline ourselves. And this is no different than you would see in a sports organization. All right, we're going to do a track and field test. Everybody has to do the 400 meter hurdles in X amount of time. Let's see where we're at. We're going to do all these things to really lower our times and increase our speed and then remeasure ourselves. Same sort of thing happen inside of cyber. So G Mark, what are the different types of frameworks? Well, let's actually start at the very beginning. What is a framework? Because sometimes people hear that term tossed around and you kind of think you sort of might know, but uh, let's discuss it. So think of a framework as a structure, much like if you're putting up a new house, you're going to put in a frame. Okay, those two by fours in the frame is on which you're going to hang the walls and then run your electrical, your plumbing, everything else like that. The framework is a structured approach for doing something. And when we look at frameworks, we're finding that the advantage of a framework is, well, these are designs that have already been proven to work. You wouldn't try to build a house, for example, without blueprints to say, hey, let me just nail some boards together and see what happens. That's great when you're nine years old and you're building a doghouse. And of course, it looks like a nine-year-old built your doghouse. But we're professionals and we can't kind of do that on the fly method for our organizations. So what we do is we turn to existing frameworks that have been developed over time through the expertise of others and have been tested by numerous organizations that have been able to implement it, find out issues, tweak it, update it, etc. In general, so, yeah. So I, I want to pause you on there because I think there's one thing that's really valuable. If you create your own framework from the ground up, you are going to be questioned by every auditor and regulator why you didn't use a proven known framework. So by using one of these repeatable patterns, you've already lowered your risk and established credence to what you're doing has sound judgment. Yeah, and so again, part of it, I suppose is defensive. You wanna be able to then 
have some response because if you will, no prophet is ever honored in their hometown. You could be brilliant, you could be writing all kinds of things, but people will challenge you. But if you say, hey, we're using an industry approved or a government approved framework, a lot less chance of being challenged on that one. Secondly, the idea of having something that has been subject to a lot of uh, peer review, so to speak, uh, is great because it means other people, other organizations, other professionals have gone through. So if we're gonna look for frameworks, some of the things are things like, well, what type of frameworks are out there? And then what do we care about? Uh, so we're gonna talk about three different types of frameworks. I'll talk about a risk framework. I'll, we'll talk about control frameworks and then program frameworks. Now, I mentioned risk framework first because to a certain extent, when we're talking about risk, we're talking about measurable uncertainty. And if I have measurable uncertainty, I want to be able to find ways to effectively protect myself in looking at what could go wrong out there. When we talk about a control framework, we're talking about, for lack of a better term, a parts catalog. And so a control framework such as the CIS controls or the NIST 853 Rev5 are going to be parts catalogs. They're going to be huge collections of pretty much everything you could ever think about that could represent something in a cybersecurity program. But yet, just having a parts catalog or a box of parts doesn't help. And so a program framework is, if you will, the instruction manual. The instruction manual that says, here's how to fit all these parts together and make them into some sort of a cohesive whole. So although I started with risk framework, I just want to mention that. I'll actually probably discuss it more toward the end. But the idea of managing risk really suggests what? That we understand what it is that we're up against. It doesn't do a whole lot of good to implement programs that address the wrong problem. It doesn't do us any good to invest in resources that are misdirected toward where we actually think uh, the threat could be. So let's go to the concept of a control framework first. So when I talk about a parts catalog, Ross, what, what comes to mind when I mention a parts catalog for security? Yeah, so there's, you know, the CIS control framework where you would say, how do I have, you know, effective asset management and other key controls where you would expect identity management you would expect certain key functions in every organization, those high level parts that have to be there or you're really missing out on having a good cyber program. And the level of controls can vary, right? You may have a very, very small amount like in the CIS controls, or you may have a extensive list of over a hundred controls if you follow NIST. Yeah, so when we look at something like a NIST versus a CIS control set, by the way, quick background on the CIS control. So originally in around 2008, a working group got together, John Gilligan, who is a CIO of Air Force was in charge and they put together what are called the consensus audit guidelines. And what they represented then was all these professionals getting together saying, hey, what are the issues that you are facing in your enterprise that if you could address them, you could improve your security? Or if you didn't address them, you were vulnerable. 
and they came up with 20 different items. Well, the question was, well, which is most important? Well, they kind of looked around and says, how do we get someone to validate it? And someone says, I know, let's take it up the road to NSA. Back when everybody liked NSA, because NSA has a what? A couple roles. Uh, they have signals intelligence, which means they need to gather information from other nations. And they also have an information protect function, which means they have to protect information assets of the United States against adversaries. So, hey, you guys do this for a living and you've been doing it for years. What do you think are the most important things? And so that back and forth and the working together created the prioritized list of what became the consensus audit guidelines that then became the 20 critical controls. For a few years, it was called the SANS 20 critical controls because it was hosted on the SANS.org website. Not that SANS wrote it or SANS owned it, but SANS had really embraced that as being a really outstanding prioritized framework for controls that were working their way into the curriculum and into different programs. Well, imagine if you are a competing organization to SANS, let's say you're ISACA and you put out a uh, certification for CISM or your ISC squared and you do the CISSP. Now this is just conjecture on my part. I'm not, I'm not recounting history here, but this is the way I would kind of read it. Imagine if you're General Motors and Ford comes up with a manufacturing excellence standard. And they call it the Ford Manufacturing Excellence Standard. If you're on the General Motors board, are you going to want to go and tell everybody, hey, this GM car was made with Ford Excellence? Yeah, it doesn't compute. And so it turned out that in spite of the brilliance and the excellence of this, there was some little bit of reticence. And so these controls are now managed by a nonprofit, the Center for Internet Security. And you can find them on cisecurity.org. If you actually go to the website in the upper right-hand corner, there's a quick link to the CIS controls. And what we find in these CIS controls then is three basic categorizations of controls, basic, foundational, and then organizational. Because they're in a prioritized list, it suggests that if we are starting out a security program and we didn't know where to begin, begin with number one. And so I'm not going to read all 20 controls. You can certainly look them up on your own. But I do want to mention a few. The first one, inventory and control of hardware assets. And very closely associated with that is the inventory and control of software assets. So Ross, think about it. If you did not know what systems were connected to your network and you did not have any idea what software was running on any of your devices, how would you protect your enterprise? So it's a rhetorical that, question, isn't it? That's really, really hard, right? You would put systems in place to patch everything, but would you know if they were patched or not? No, because you don't have an inventory of them, right? So you yeah. need to know which systems have been disconnected from the internet. And you, a classic example of that was when I was in the Federal Reserve. We had a lot of bank auditors who would go to all the, the big banks, the Wells Fargo's, the JPMC, you know, all, all the ones you would normally think of. And they would do audits on those organizations and they'd work out of hotel rooms or in the banks. And during this place, they're not in a protected network from our organization. Right, they're using Wi-Fi and other things. And yes, we would have services like VPNs available, but a lot of times they were off our network. 
And when that happens, it makes it really difficult to apply patches to their laptops. So if they're unpatched and they're in untrusted Wi-Fi networks where maybe they're touching malware or, or other people could snoop their, their network traffic, and now they bring these machines back, we need to make sure they're patched or we put them in some type of quarantine. But the only way you know about if they're patched or not is having an effective inventory. Mm -hmm. So it just ties into how important these fundamental basic foundations are before you can have a really good, robust threat vulnerability management program. Right. In fact, attackers will scan your network trying to find some opportunities. So the control one, your inventory and control your hardware, suggests utilizing an active discovery tool to identify all the devices that are connected to your network, update your asset inventory, but also by doing that, you might spot things you didn't think were going to be there. It could either be shadow IT or it could be intruder devices or things such as that. And then keep that up to date and including the hardware assets, even if they don't happen to be connected to the network at that time. The software, number two inventory control of software assets, again, software inventory tools to automate all that documentation, but then we could possibly even go beyond that point and use what's called application whitelisting technology to basically say, you know what? Certain apps that we know about are allowed to run anything we haven't defined, the answers no. Now, there's three other controls I want to single out briefly. Number three, continuous vulnerability management. So if I'm looking at continuous vulnerability management, Ross, what does that mean to you? If I said, hey, you need to continuously manage your vulnerabilities, how do you interpret that? What that typically means to me, and, and I think of things from a very technical level first, is I'm probably going to have a tool like Nessus or Qualicent in my environment, and I'm scanning everything, right? And, and I'm seeing where I need to do patch management. So that information of knowing where things are unpatched things would be misconfigured, maybe I can check something against the CIS control, would allow me to identify where I need to drive change and remediation. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately the focus of a vuln management program. It's not the identification of risks and, and vulnerabilities, it's driving the remediation and change. So I need to have a really good inventory of owners of systems. So when I identify things, I prioritize these findings amongst all the others, because I may have SAS findings, DAS findings, container findings, uh, cloud findings, audit findings, the list continues. But how do I put all those into a remediation plan so that the developers are burning down the vulnerabilities in a timely manner? Yeah. And, and when vulnerabilities are sort of announced, okay, and, and we might at a later date get into the uh, CVSS and the CB and that whole world of how we manage that. But for right now, uh, let's just stick with something very, very simple. Um, Microsoft Patch Tuesday. So once a month, updates come out and they address vulnerabilities, that is say identified weaknesses. At that point in time, it sort of creates a bit of a race condition because we used to joke that the day after Patch Tuesday was called Exploit Wednesday because attackers or people would go and reverse engineer these patches, say, oh, that's a vulnerable application or that's a vulnerable DLL. Let me go ahead and create an exploit, upload it and make it a point and click on Metasploit. So for us as CISOs, we're kind of caught in this little dichotomy of 
well, hey, there's a patch out. Let's apply it now, now, now with the knowledge that over the last couple of years, some of these patches have gone sideways and they've caused some problems. And so you want to hold off a little bit and make sure that it's working. But at the same time, the attackers are developing approaches to go ahead and um, go after you. So that continuous vulnerability management, scanning your systems, looking for out of date, looking for things that are vulnerable, and then being able to patch them are huge. And then the fourth of the top four is controlled use of administrative privilege. I mean, if you think about it, has can somebody do a massive attack or even a successful attack in your enterprise as a guest user? No. I mean, the operating systems really, really limit what you can do, even as a regular um, operator. So you got to get admin. You got to get root. And so what happens then is that privilege escalation attacks are one of the precursors to a successful um, broader attack because you need to have these privileges of admin. So what should we do for all your admin accounts? How about every last one of them requires two-factor authentication, multi-factor authentication? In addition, you don't share admin credentials. You don't have one common admin account. Everybody gets something different. Why? So that you have auditability. And if one account gets compromised somehow, you could then go ahead and trim it and then do a risk assessment to see what might have gone wrong. And then we want to be able to get some alerts set up automatically. If somebody goes and adds a domain admin to your enterprise, uh, I ought to see a big red light flashing somewhere saying, warning, domain admin account just created and added. And if I had just done that myself, I go, cool. Now, we've only done four of them. But yet, if you've heard of the Pareto principle, you get 80% of the benefit from 20% of the activities. If you can do these top four, inventory and control of your hardware and software, continuous vulnerability management, and control your admin privileges, I submit that you have seriously tightened up your security program even before you've looked at the remaining 16. Right, mm -hmm. if you can fix things in the identification phase, then you have a much better chance of being able to remediate. If you can fix things in the protection phase, you have a whole lot less things that you probably need to remediate. So the earlier you can get your security processes more effective, the bigger bang for the buck and the return on investment you're going to drive. Right. And you, you, you kind of gently dip your toe into the cybersecurity framework, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Okay. But you're starting to see that these are all going to fit together correctly. The last of the 20 controls I want to talk about is number 20. The last in the prioritized list. The sexiest, the coolest. Can you tell which one I'm talking about? Pen tests and red team exercises. Gee whiz, everybody wants to be a pen tester who likes to break things. You get to go in there and be the ninja hacker and go ahead and take things over. We have requirements for doing pen tests as part of some of our contractual requirements. And we'll talk a little bit later about other types of frameworks such as like PCI, DSS, et cetera, but you might have a, a requirement to, to do a pen test. And yet a pen test is number 20 of 20. What were they thinking? Why is this at the last thing you would do? And it's not the last thing you do because it's the least important. It's the last thing you do because it is a validation that you did one through 19 correctly. An ideal world, when you call in the red team, when you call in the pen testers, they bang away and they bang away and they just can't get in. 
and they go, I guess you did it right. Now, any of us who've ever worked pen testing knows that never happens. You always, always, always find a way in. Although at some point, I'll tell you about the one we did last year, we couldn't get in. There is actually a pen test that we did. We had to give the client an A+. So my pen tester said, I, I got to get in. I got to get in. I said, we've used up all the hours. He says, I'll put my own time in on it. Didn't get in. By the way, it was in the cloud. So back to our CIS controls. We're starting to see then we've got this catalog. You can go to cisecurity.org, download them for free. All they will ask you to do is provide your name and your contact information, like an email. They're not going to spam you. They're not going to go ahead and try to, to sell you extra stuff. They, it's a well run organization. But that's the first place we might want to go look for, for being able to get one of these control frameworks. Gee, Mark, you talked a little bit about control frameworks being the parts catalog, but we haven't really talked about program frameworks. So for our listeners who are already following the 20 CIS controls, why would we need a program framework? Well, good point. Here's a question. How would you brief those 20 controls to management? Would you go through, if you had a few minutes with the board or the senior executive, and say, well, i got to talk to you about 20 different things. We're going to look at this and look at it. No, you get all bogged down in the details. And so what we want to do also is to recognize that the parts catalog doesn't tell you what you need. Think of it like going uh, you know, back in the day when we had a Sears catalog. Or for those of us who are really old, the Radio Shack catalog. We had every little electronic part imaginable. It doesn't tell you how to build a radio just tells you you got all these parts. And so what the program framework tells you is how to put the parts together. It says, guess what? You're gonna to need to connect these parts to your business. And so what we look at when we're talking about things such as control frameworks, I've got a box of parts. Program frameworks, I've got a strategy for doing it. One of the strategies that's out there is what's called the NIST cybersecurity framework. The cybersecurity framework, which consists of the high-level core of identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. Those are our five functions. Represent, if you will, a business process by which we can implement some of these controls. And that's why it said you kind of gave a little bit of a, a lead into that when you started talking about protect and detect. So let's talk a little bit about the NIST cybersecurity framework. It, all, it goes all the way back to about seven years ago in the Obama administration when they had come up with an executive order that says, hey, um, critical infrastructures really need better protection. Now, if you take a look at the critical infrastructures, there's 16 of them, at least as defined um, in the United States in the sector. It's defined by Presidential Policy Directive 21 or PPD 21. And we'll see things like chemical sector, defense industrial base, energy, food and agriculture, information technology, stuff like that. Now, how much of that is actually run by the government? Not a lot. Communication sector, how many government-owned telecom companies have we got here in the United States for cell phones? We don't. And so what happens was, is the thought was, there's essential critical infrastructure out here. And then this cybersecurity framework gives us a way to go ahead and do that. So let's think a little bit about these five functions in order. And Ross, tell me, what are your thoughts about the identify, protect, detect, respond, recover? Does that seem to make a nice strategy for implementing controls? I think it really maps well to the functions organizations need to perform. 
And as we think about it, we really want to assign ownership, right? So if we have to worry about identification, who's going to perform asset management? Who's going to perform risk assessments? Who's going to look at supply chain risk management types of functions with the proactive and protective technologies that protect us, our antivirus, our firewalls, our data loss prevention solutions, our web application firewalls, our identity management and access control systems. This is really the strategy that we have to map to make our security policies come alive. And the devil is in the details. And it really goes around ownership as well as measurement of effectiveness. I can have the most amazing policy written that says I'm going to secure the world, just like I'm going to solve world peace and and hunger. But if I don't actually have a functional plan that maps out responsibilities, that shows each of the individual metrics of how I'm going to measure my performance in these things, I have no chance of really achieving the full maturity levels that I need to do to be effective. Mm -hmm. So as you think through these functions, really look at which ones are, are valuable. Think about how can we use these functions, not just in cyber, but at our risk committees to help the other places, right? Is legal and compliance and your finance offices thinking about automated detection mechanisms, automated identification mechanisms of all systems that may be vulnerable to anti-money laundering or whatever is unique to your organization. And Mm -hmm. as we share this maturity of frameworks to larger than cyber, we're going to be really doing great things around risk. Yeah. And so for those who want to learn a little bit more about it, go to nist.gov slant cyber framework all one word, of course, and uh, framework version 1.1. It's free to download. You can take a look at it uh, and you can go through there. And what you'll also find out that NIST is developing a lot of additional documents to go ahead and help support that. Well, we've talked about the concept of this high level function. Identify what's going on. What are our issues? Protect. I want to go ahead and set up defenses. Now, if I can protect effectively and I block every single attack every time, there's nothing to detect. And therefore there's nothing to respond to and I never have to recover. Well, that's kind of wishful thinking. Dr. Eric Cole, it said, it's important to protect, but you gotta be able to detect. And what Eric was saying there is that it's great that we set up all our defenses, but we're not gonna block everything. Stuff gets through. As I tell people, this is not like a, um, a World Cup match in soccer where the winning score could be 1-0. This is more like a basketball game where you're going to have a lot of points scored on both sides. And so as a result, we have to have a robust mechanism for detecting. And then lastly, the response and recovery suggests that we're able to go ahead and come back and get back online. Within the cybersecurity framework, for each function, there's a number of different categories. Again, It's a approach to say, here's how we do different things. For example, in the identification phase, we talk about asset management. Yeah, well, we just talked about the importance of critical control one and two or CIS control one and two, inventory hardware and software. We wanna look at things such as having a risk assessment, a risk management strategy, 
all those things get done up front. And then as we look at the other functions in the back, the protect, detect, respond, recover, we're gonna find out that those are gonna be able to allow us to structure our program in a meaningful way. Now, how do you connect the dots? It turns out that there are some cross-references that are available that basically go through each function, down to the category, down to the subcategory, and crosswalk those to your critical security controls or, or the CIS controls. Sorry, I'm still stuck on the old name. Or even things like the NIST 853, which is now on Rev 5. That just came out in October of 2020. And allowing us now to say, hey, if I want to work on having and identifying my endpoints, that's going to be my critical control, CIS control. I'll get it right. You know, one, five, 15, 16. And oh, by the way, the access control portions of NIST 853. Therefore, what we find is that crosswalk gives us a connective tissue between the control frameworks and the program frameworks. Ross? And, and Sunil Yu did a fantastic talk at RSA where he talks about the history of IT and security. And he says, you know, think of the decades of technology. In the 80s, we were mostly focused on asset management and tools to know what we had. Right. And then what we saw is, well, we started seeing cyber events come up. So in the 90s, we focused on antivirus and firewalls and secure configs were the only things that going to keep us secure. And that's really where we moved to the protect phase. Mm -hmm. But of course, our antivirus definitions and firewalls didn't stop everything. So we couldn't just be protective. Now we needed to detect what those things missed. So we started building intrusion detection systems and security information event monitoring tools. And we launched the 2000s with a detect phase. Well, guess what happened? We started becoming overloaded with information. So in the 2010s, we started seeing incident response really focus around tools like EDR, the solutions like Carbon Black and CrowdStrike that would help log the event so we could really dig into things to understand what was happening and all the uh, security uh, tools that created automation like SOAR. And that's how we really began to try to go to a response phase. But now we're starting to see even things shift the framework as well. And we're starting to push more the recovery phase as we see ransomware hitting all over the organizations we see in any environment. So having the ability to have really good business continuity planning, disaster recovery planning, and read-only backups, and in really implementing all of some of the more modern security controls becomes so much more relevant as we build infrastructures that are immutable, distributed, and ephemeral. And these types of evolutions allow us to look at where the security industry changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so now we're starting to see how these pieces are, are fitting together. Now, we've, we're just kind of using examples. Remember we talked about as an example of a control framework, we look at the CIS controls. There's also, as I said, NIST 853, REV5 has just come out. Uh, unlike the CIS controls, however, these controls for NIST are listed not in priority order, but in alphabetical order, so to speak. And so as a result, it's parts catalog, so you kind of expect that. 
But when you get in the program framework, how do you do things? That is absolutely kind of in the direction of the theme in which we're going to do. Now, we mentioned the uh, cybersecurity framework. I mean, there are other program frameworks out there. Uh, ISO 27000 series. Um, the ISO 27000, actually 27001, your ISMS, your Information System Security Management System. The genesis for that document came from British Standard 7799 which then got converted into ISO 17799. And they said, you know, that doesn't really match your numbering systems. We'll give you the 27,000 series. And there's a whole bunch of requirements and guidelines and maybe 40 or so different sector specifics. Now, unlike the NIST documents, which you can download at no charge because, well, American taxpayers have paid for them, uh, the ISO standards do require payment and they require payment in Swiss francs. So if you go to iso.org, you can go ahead to their home page. And from there, you can take a look at uh, different types of documents. You can choose to download them. And if you say, go to the ISO store and look at the different standards that they have in terms of uh, catalogs, you can find stuff. And so as a result, the um, set of information that's available there, but as they say, you pay in Swiss francs. Now, quick word of warning. If you want to do ISO, and by the way, people said, well, who does ISO? I said, everybody but the United States. Um, I mean, it's very common in uh, Europe, Middle East, Africa area, also Asia, Pacific, APAC, uh, Canada as well. And so people that I deal with over in these other countries said, hey, when are you Americans going to start using ISO? I said, as soon as we start using the metric system. <clears throat> Wait, that is an ISO standard. Never mind. Anyway, the point is what? You'll find out that um, you'll may be exposed to this if you're in a multinational organization or you're not homed in the United States or you've been asked to do business with entities that are focused over there. So quick side story, a couple of years ago, I uh, got a call saying, hey, can you help us out? I said, what's going on? It's an American company, software developer, developing security products, and they had a big deal on the line. The customer is gonna be their first major customer in Europe, it was a huge purchase. And just toward the end of uh, everything's ready to go and uh, dot the I and cross the T, they said, oh, yes, just please send us a copy of your, your ISO certification. And of course, they're like, um, what's that? And so they said, well, your auditors give it to you. They'll basically certify it. OK, so they called up their auditors and said, hey, we've got a big deal. Can we get our ISO 27000 certification by this Friday? And <laughs> yeah, we're laughing. Like, uh, it doesn't work that way. It's like, I need to run a marathon by Friday. Get me in shape. And so what happened, the insurance company called over, they called me and they said, can you help these guys out a little bit? So, so I got a hold of a gentleman, uh, Mike, who lives in Austria, who had done a lot of these uh, gap analyses. And it was interesting. Mike had done like one quarter of all the ISO 27,000 series gap analyses in the entire nation of Austria. I says, man, this guy's a rock star. Till he find out up to that point, there'd been 24 and he'd done six of them. Well, you know, the numbers tell a different story than percentages, but it sounded good. And anyway, knew his stuff, we brought him in. And what we did is we walked through all the practices, all the activities. Remember, this is a program framework. So it's how you do business. And what we did with the gap analysis is basically coded all these little requirements in one of three ways. If they were already doing what the requirements said you were supposed to do, they got a green. And we had you know, a couple, you know, hundred plus different things we looked at. If they were not already doing what they were supposed to be doing, 
but needed to add it, they got a yellow. So what do you think we coded as red? Things that they were doing that were against the rules, that were a total violation of the ISO. Okay, the red stuff is like, you guys are going the wrong direction. You need to turn around and come back. And so as a result of that, they ended up with a big long punch list of things to do to reach their ISO certification. And we can get more into the details. I prefer not to in this call, but uh, you know, the, the epilogue on this whole thing was as follows. So Mike was a very expensive resource. In fact, I did something that consulting companies almost never do. I passed him through at cost. I did not mark up his rate one penny because I wanted to make sure that the client of course could afford it, but then I was gonna make my money doing all the remediation. All right, so it's kind of a betting on the future. Well, call them up in a month. How's it going? Well, we're still thinking about it. Call them up a few more months later. Well, da -da -da -da. then they had a change. They had a new CIO and then they got a new management direction and they never did it. And so I remember the last call I had with them was, so how many deals have you made now in Europe in the last year that you've chosen not to do this? How many millions have you left on the table because you wouldn't spend a few thousands in aligning your program? So what we start to see then is depending upon what line of work you're in and who your customers are, doing a security framework correctly could translate literally into millions of dollars of additional sales that this particular company left on the table because of changes in management and the new person didn't have the vision and they didn't embrace it and things such as that. So be careful because as you look at these frameworks, these are non-trivial in some cases. The control framework's great, it's parts catalog. But when I get to a program framework, it requires some long haul dedication. And then as a result of doing it that way, I'm gonna to try to go ahead and change the way I'm doing business. And if I can change effectively the way I'm doing business, which could include things like your relationships with your suppliers. And how do I do security for human resources? These are some of the control objectives of the ISO 27001. And then what we find then is as a result, this needs to become a business transformation. Usually security is kind of viewed in the worst case as a cost center, okay? They're like toilet paper. You gotta have it in the, in the employee washrooms, but you know what? We're not gonna spend any more money than we have to. That's why you get that really thin, nasty stuff and why you wanna get a promotion so you get a key to the executive washroom where they have the nice pillowy cushioning stuff. Anyway. If we're just viewed in security as toilet paper, <laughs> they're gonna get the cheapest stuff they can find. If we're viewed as being compliance oriented, hey, we gotta have this, we gotta have that, you gotta check in the box. That's great, but the problem with compliance is what? Compliance is a C minus, it's a minimum passing grade. Yes, I've got my program in place. Yes, my ISO auditors came through and they said you're compliant, but you know what? Compliant organizations get hacked all the time. Compliance does not equal excellence. And so if we want to go beyond that, we want to get to the point where I've got my security program and maybe it's more focused around, hey, I've got this product, this service, this thing like that. It's a budget oriented thing. I'm constantly arguing for more money because I want to get endpoint protection. I want to get endpoint detection and response. I maybe want to do a DNA, things like that. But when you get to the top level, when the CISO earns that C, the chief, the CO part, the chief officer, where you're going to be peers with chief financial officer, chief operations officer, chief legal officer, maybe not in terms of salary or terms of power, 
but in terms of communications. At that level, security becomes the enabler for new lines of business. It come, becomes the assurance that the model of the organization will work. It's the protector of the continuity that keeps all these horrible stories we're hearing today about ransomware from ever hitting home because we built our controls effectively. That's really where you wanna go and that's not quite written down in these frameworks, but your end state, if you do it correctly, is gonna allow you to get there from here. Yeah, so I wanna highlight a couple of phrases that you can use when you go forward and speak the CISO language to your executives. The first is cyber is in the business of revenue protection. Let me repeat that. Cyber is in the business of revenue protection. So can we keep our systems from being breached and having to pay fines? That saves the organization money. Can we enable the organization to be compliant with program frameworks, allowing us to sell to more locations, more dealerships, more customers, and bring money and bring the bacon back to the organization? And can we remain within our legal guidelines? So as you think about these things, I typically use three big pillars of what a cyber program has to do. It needs to safeguard the business. Those are all the protection, uh, detection, response controls. It needs to enable the business, which typically means compliance frameworks. And it also needs to create a culture of cyber vigilance. How do we make everyone who works for the employee a human sensor to improving cybersecurity? And as we take these three major functions and map those into our control frameworks, our program frameworks, then we can really shift the business to drive the right results. So we talked about these two pieces how do we bring it home to really speak in terms of business risk? What would we use for risk framework? Well, good question. I, I kind of like to, to start at the baseline. This is what is risk? And I would argue that a two-word definition for risk is measurable uncertainty. By that, I mean this. If I have no way of measuring something, if I have no way to quantify it, if I have no idea, how can I treat that element as a risk because it falls outside of my ability to manage it. And if there's no uncertainty involved, there's no risk involved. So if I go to an insurance company who is in the business, by the way, of accepting risk on behalf of others and say, you know what? I think the sun's not going to rise tomorrow. The world's ending tonight. So here's a thousand dollars. But if the sun does rise tomorrow, I want you to pay me $2,000 because you'll accept that risk. The insurance company's like, no. Now, the other way around, they just think you're an idiot. They'll take your money. But there's no uncertainty there. And then when I say measurable, if I ask you to say something like, you know, kind of like Schrodinger's cat, okay, there's, a, there's an enclosed system. Okay, what's in the box? Well, what do you mean, what box? Well, I'm not going to tell you what box. But I'm, I'm worried there might be a snake in there. I want some insurance there's not a snake in the box. Well, how big is the box? Can't tell you. Where's the box? Can't tell you. How long has it been there? Can't tell you. I can't measure it. So I can't measure it. I can't evaluate the risk. And so measurable uncertainty. What this then allows us to do is reduce the variability in our business performance by saying, 
if we manage these risks effectively, we are less likely to encounter bad outcomes. Notice I'm talking about likelihood. It doesn't guarantee we won't encounter bad outcomes, but it reduces the probability of bad, which is kind of the whole idea of reducing your risk. So that brings us up to the question of a risk framework. A risk framework suggests what? That we have a structured approach to define those things that we consider to be risky, to pull apart the components of risk to see what are those elements that contribute to it, come up with a way to evaluate that, then strategies to manage that risk, to go ahead and get it to the level that we can uh, take it for granted and then, or not take it for granted, but live with it, so to speak. And then from there, the next step would be to say, let's continue to monitor this on a regular basis. So whether you're using NIST 839, ISO 27005, or FAIR, you're always going to need something like a risk matrix that says what's the likelihood and what's the consequence. And now when you look between likelihood and consequence, there's a third area you want to add, which is the control effectiveness. Mm -hmm. So let's speak in terms of the business. They have assets and each of those assets, whether they're IT systems or physical hardware, those influence the consequence. They have data classification levels. They have dollars behind them. There's the threats. What are the things that are going to attack our assets? And we need to look at our threat to inform the analysis by the likelihood. How likely is this going to happen? Well, if it's internet facing, it's a lot more likely than when it's on an intranet and not touching the open internet, right? Mm -hmm. And then last but not least is the vulnerability. We can look at our CVSS scores, which say, hey, this is a critical vulnerability. We can look to see if it's being actively exploited. And those types of things allow us to understand how bad that is. And we can start to look at, well, if we patch, does that fully take away the risk? Well, if we can't patch and we can only put a web application firewall, what's the chance of that actually blocking this specific risk? Or can they just add an extra space to their file and now it's, it's, it's going through, mm -hmm. right? Things like that where we have to look in, help tie an effective risk management program back to the business. Right. So when we look at risk, um, essentially it kind of can be decomposed into three different things. Uh, risk would be a product of the asset impact times the threat times the vulnerability. All right, let me take a look at each one. Asset impact, how much damage could be caused? If I've got something that can't be destroyed, that is to say there's no way you can impact this asset, this thing that I care about, what's my risk? None, because you can't damage it. How about the threat? What if the threat actor could be eliminated? For example, um, we find a way to get rid of polio and it's no longer a disease for mankind. What's the risk of getting polio? Well, I just got rid of the threat, it's gone. And then the vulnerability is the exposure or the interaction of your asset to the threat and how well is that controlled? So let me give you a, a simple example. Not IT-based, so again, normally when I'm talking to executives, they try to pick stuff that they're gonna get. So if you're 
CISO oriented and you're thinking about bits and bytes, which we tend to do, let's pull out of those models. So imagine that your company is in downtown and you've got this beautiful piece of artwork in the lobby of the building. It's, it's made out of fine glass. It's very delicate. People come look at it and they go, ooh, and ah. And it's really kind of a pride and joy. That's your asset. You then read in the morning paper that there is this crazy guy running around with a wooden baseball bat banging away on pieces of art around the city, and it looks like he just got to your city last night. Ooh, okay, so let's take a look at our, our scenario. What is the threat? Crazy guy with a baseball bat. What is the vulnerability? My beautiful glass sculpture is sitting in the lobby, which is generally accessible to the public. What's the asset impact? It's glass. A wooden baseball bat on glass could do some serious damage. So we have a risk problem. Now let's go through and look at each of those scenarios. On the risk impact, what if I go ahead and I sell my beautiful glass sculpture and I replace it with a beautiful titanium sculpture? What's happened to my risk now? Zero. You can't break it. It's titanium. Kind of funny watching the guy hitting him with a baseball bat, but he's not going to do any damage. Number two, vulnerability. I take that beautiful glass sculpture and I move it out of the lobby and I put it up into a protected area of the company behind bulletproof glass where everybody can admire it, but you can't get to it. What's my risk? Gone down to zero. It's still delicate. That impact's there. The threat's still out there, but you can't get to it. And lastly, the threat. You read the next morning in the paper that this crazy guy has been arrested and is going to be put away in a facility for the next 15 years. Guess what? You can now leave the thing in the lobby again because your threat went to zero. So because it's a product, risk, impact, times threat, times vulnerability, we find out that if you drive any of those three terms to zero, that you can drive your risk to zero. Now, here comes the issue for risk management. How much control do you have over threats? How much influence do you have over hurricanes if you're worried about a natural disaster threat or fires? How much control do we have over hackers sitting in Pyongyang hacking away in their bunny slippers or whatever slippers you wear in Pyongyang? We don't. Typically, we can't control threats. So let's look at the impact on our asset. Hey, it's a glass sculpture. No matter what you do about it, if you're going to hold on to that asset, it's going to be potentially have some impact. If I have my network where I have my sensitive data on there, if I have technology out there, if it could be damaged, if my database could be encrypted through ransomware, that impact still exists. So there's one thing left, vulnerability. And an awful lot of risk management comes down to vulnerability management. Ooh, wait a minute, didn't I hear that in the critical controls? I'm sorry, CIS controls a little bit earlier. Yeah, continuous vulnerability management number three. And so what we find then is that if we run an effective risk management program by reducing the vulnerability, okay? So I'm broadcasting here from Florida. We just finished up hurricane season. I can't control hurricanes, that's the threat. The impact is gonna be what it is. My house was built before the 2001 Miami-Dade standards came in, so I pay a higher insurance rate. But uh, the vulnerability is the fact that I'm here in Florida. If I really, really, really didn't want to be damaged by a hurricane, I'll move to Las Vegas. Because guess what? We don't get hurricanes there. Got other threats maybe, but you can see we can go ahead and address that vulnerability. Or I could put on hurricane shutters if something comes up. There's a lot that I can do to reduce my risk. And so kind of the last thought, although we can look at the different type of risk frameworks and 
what we talked about, uh, Rashi had mentioned things like the NIST 800, special publication 839, which is the overall risk management process, or even the risk assessment process, the NIST 800-30, or back for the rest of the world, we'll use an ISO standard, the 27005, their information security risk management program. Really what we're gonna to try to come down after we go through this, identify our risk, do the analysis, come up with some evaluation is we have to have a response. And the response we have to risk could be to accept it. I can live with that. All right, I'm still here in Florida. I decided to accept it. Or I could go ahead and I could mitigate the risk. I could go ahead and put some controls in to go ahead and make things a little bit less dangerous for me. Or I could avoid the thing entirely. I said, I'm just not going there. But there's a fourth option, and that's assignment of risk. And when you assign risk, you're basically, in exchange for something of value, letting somebody else take on your risk. We do that with auto insurance. We do that with home insurance. We let the insurance company take on the uncertainty because they've got an awful lot of data that says that on average, if we get enough customers, we can't lose because just the law of large numbers. And so that's why Warren Buffett would buy something like Geico because you can't lose. Well, the only thing you'd lose on is if you had like an asteroid take out half the country or a zombie apocalypse or something like a nuclear war. And so those are called exclusions. So your insurance policy exclusions are to keep events that could affect a lot of people at once from happening. And if they only happen one at a time, that's manageable. Why do we care in cybersecurity? Because we can go ahead now and get cybersecurity risk insurance. We can go ahead and get all the security stuff. You can get business interruption insurance that says, hey, if something goes wrong, if you get locked up with ransomware or whatever, we'll help you pay your bills while you rebuild your database. There's only one problem with that. Business interruption insurance only allows for the orderly demise of your organization. Because while you're paying your salaries and your utility bills with the insurance checks, your customers who need what you provide aren't gonna wait and live without it for the two months it takes you to reconstitute. So they've signed another contract someplace else. And when you finally go back and said, hey, we're up and going, what do you want to do? You want to come back? And they go, well, we actually signed a, a contract um, with somebody else. They're not as good as you, but we're in for another 10 months. So maybe call us up, okay. So Mark, I think you've done a really good job of overlaying how control frameworks map to program frameworks and map to the risk frameworks. The, the other thing we also have to look at, and, and this is probably a longer discussion is, choosing the framework. Mm -hmm. Do you have certain legal requirements, contractual requirements, industry requirements, and, and making sure we go through those things smartly? And that's probably something cyber has to talk to the business about, talk to legal about, and make sure we're following all the right things to win the right way for our companies. Mm -hmm. So as we focus on these things, I think they, they map back to building a culture of risk of building a culture of risk acceptance of risk understanding and a focus of we have to take some risk to enable the business so i think this has been a great discussion any concluding thoughts there g mark i think that what we've done is we kind of do a quick walk around the horn on this whole concept of frameworks kind of as a quick summary we said that a framework is a organized or structured way of doing things. 
A control framework is going to be a parts catalog that allows us to get a list either prioritized like the CIS controls of the things that we could be doing or something like the NIST 853 Rev5, which is going to be just an alphabetic list of everything you can do. Our program frameworks are assembly instructions. This interacts with the business. This is how we then take these parts and put them in the right place. And some of these program frameworks are going to be prioritized in terms of how do we do it. Identify, protect, detect, respond, recover, for example, with respect to the cybersecurity framework. This is where, if you will, the rubber meets the road. And then lastly, the risk frameworks allowing us to go ahead and look at this measurable uncertainty, deciding which types of these risks, once we've identified them and quantified them, are we willing to live with? Do we say we have to totally avoid it? Do we try to mitigate? Or do we just go ahead and write a check for somebody and we allocate it out to the side? By putting all that together effectively, as a CISO, you're going to be able to have a program that's defensible, that's measurable, and is going to be responsive to both the business requirements as well as the changing needs of the um, of the real world. Well, I think that makes a fantastic summary. So, G. Mark, thank you for wrapping it up. Remember, each one of us is in the business of revenue protection. Use this CISO tradecraft to influence your organization for good, to transform it, enable the business, and safeguard it against the biggest threats and risks to your company. So thank you again for attending and listening our podcast. If you like this, please share it with your friends and help promote us and subscribe so you can hear more episodes going forward.